All countries have conflicting histories. But while questions always arise when filmmakers choose to address those conflicts, several filmmaking nations have long since settled for convenient and distracting truths. In China, they're called wuxia, or martial heroes. Think of King Hu's A Touch of Zen, Chang Shei's The One-Armed Swordsman, or Zhang Yimou's The House of Flying Daggers. In Japan, they are referred to as Bushido, or Codes of Honor. Kenji Mitsuguchi's The 47 Ronin, Masaki Kobayashi's Harikiri, or Hiroshi Inagaji's Shushingura. In India, it isn't confined to one genre, but still you have Ketan Mehta's Sardar, Ashutosh Gaurivikur's Lagan, Once Upon a Time in India, and Gunasikar's Rajama Devi. These are historical films that champion a nation's past which means you will be very hard pushed to find a Chinese film tackling Chairman Mao's Great Leap Forward that resulted in the deaths of close to 40 million people. Likewise, there are no Japanese films that directly address the wholesale genocide Emperor Hirohito's army inflicted on the people of Nanking. Or what are the massacres and reprisals inflicted upon Muslims, Sikhs and Hindus in the years surrounding India's independence? In Britain, such films are called heritage cinema stories where the plots harken back to a specific era when the nation's fortunes were in their zenith. In a word, nostalgia. Hugh Hudson's Chariots of Fire, Tom Hooper's The King's Speech, and Stephen Freer's Victoria and Abdul. Even French cinema, renowned for its innovation, has François Truffaut's The Last Metro, Régis Varnier's Andochine, and Patrice Lacan's Ridicule. But it's not always so simple as nostalgie. Ireland may have films that take place during its War of Independence, Michael Collins, The Wind That Shakes the Barley, and A Nightingale Falling. But it also has titles eulogising the very oppressive 1950s, Circle of Friends, The Playboys, and Brooklyn. So perhaps history isn't something a nation's cinema needs to remember, but rather something it needs to reconsider. Which means that while Hollywood used to soak its audiences with countless westerns, that disguise the genocide of America's indigenous tribes. It is also sought to unmask such bigotry, with the likes of Alejandro Iñárritu's The Revenant, Kevin Costner's Dances with Wolves, and Robert Aldrich's Olzana's Raid, which starred Burt Lancaster. How many troopers is the major planning to put out? Well, that's a decision I won't be able to make until I know the strength of the hostile force. And their probable intention. Their probable intention is to burn, maim, torture, rape and murder. Charlie. Which brings us to Italy and Lucchino Visconti's The Leopard. The winner of the Palme d'Or at the 1963 Cannes Film Festival, The Leopard is one of cinema's outstanding achievements. A bold, striking production that studiously avoids the pitfalls that so often come with the historical romantic epic which makes it a perfect study for dealing with history, especially celebrated history. Based on Giuseppe di Lampedusa's award-winning novel, Visconti's film examines the momentous times of Italy's Risorgimento, when a Sicilian aristocrat, Don Fabrizio, Prince of Selina, played by Lancaster, fears for the revolution that is sweeping his country. As Garibaldi and his red-shirt army advance, the prince's great estates come under threat, and it falls to his nephew, Don Tancredi, played by Alain Delon, to advise him If we want everything to remain as it is, everything has to change. 
That calculation leads the prince to discourage Tancredi from marrying his daughter Concetta. Instead, he encourages him to marry Angelica Sadara, played by Claudia Cardinale, who is the daughter of a very rich merchant. Only it is not so much a marriage as it is a merger between the two classes to consolidate their respective power bases. De Lampedusa had spent years writing his one and only novel, and it was only in 1958, a full year after his death, that the Milanese publishing giant Feltrinelli picked it up. The same house, it must be added, that in 1956 had landed the coup of the century when it helped smuggle west Boris Pasternak's Dr. Zhivago. At the heart of Pasternak's sweeping novel was a love story behind which the author laid out the disasters of communist Russia, which was the reason why it was smuggled west, and one of the reasons why it was such a success in the west. By condemning communism, the novel was by proxy championing democracy. But by focusing on the failures of communism, the readers were distracted from how little things had changed. The Romanov dynasty had itself dreadfully suppressed the population. I'm 26. My mother died needlessly when I was eight. My father died in prison. I have fended for myself. I've worked my way through higher school and university. I am familiar with things that you can hardly guess at. The American equivalent would undoubtedly be Gone with the Wind. Margaret Mitchell so deceptively rewrote her nation's history that you'd be forgiven for not realising that all her characters are secessionists who support slavery. To disguise this ugliness, Mitchell dressed scene after scene with lavish costumes and placed her characters at barbecues and evening entertainments. Such opulence and pageantry distract us from the fact that slavery was not just the fabric of their way of life, but the very cornerstone of their entire economy. So much so that you would think that the Civil War was fought over a Southern Belle's right to wear green or red velvet ball gowns. Open your eyes and look at me. No, I don't think I will kiss you. Although you need kissing badly. That's what's wrong with you. You should be kissed and often, and by someone who knows how. Well, I suppose you think you are the proper person. I might be, if the right moment ever came. You're a conceited, black-hearted, vomit red butler, and I don't know why I let you come and see me. <laughs> which means that when Scarlet vows to go back to Tara, readers are encouraged to lament that her refined culture is now gone with the wind. The first thing to know about the leopard, the novel, is that de Lampedusa was in fact Prince Giuseppe Tomasi de Lampedusa. And if we were to properly translate the title from Italian, we would find that Il Gatto Pardo does not mean the leopard, but rather the serval, a small wildcat once kept as an exotic pet by the Sicilian aristocracy. In fact, the symbol of de Lampedusa's coat of arms was the serval. So, like Margaret Mitchell, de Lampedusa was clearly lamenting the passing of an age. And the first thing to know about the leopard of the film 
is that Visconti was in fact Count Don Lucchino Visconti di Madrone, who was also born into the very same ruling class. But the thing about Visconti was that he was a Marxist. Despite the great opulence and privilege into which he was born, he was ideologically opposed to that social order. And it was that precise paradox that helped make The Leopard such a landmark film. Visconti steadfastly refused to wallow in nostalgia, instead taking a gimlet eye to examine the past. Visconti's career had begun in 1943 with Ossessione, an unauthorised adaptation of James M. Cain's noir novel The Postman Always Rings Twice. Insisting on shooting on location in the Po Valley, Visconti's aesthetic helped to usher in the era of neorealism. The movement shattered the political lie that lay at the heart of modern Italian life. With the overthrow of Benito Mussolini in that same year, Visconti and his contemporaries Roberto Rossellini, Vittorio De Sica, Cesare Sabatini and Federico Fellini were intent on developing a new film language for a country freshly freed from the fascist grip. Films such as Rome Open City, Bicycle Thieves and La Terra Trema championed the very people whom Mussolini had sought to keep off the cinema screen. So if that were the case, why was Visconti making a film about Sicilian aristocrats? Because he was intent on showing that no matter how radically things had changed in Italy in the 100 years since the Risorgimento, and especially the 20 years since the defeat of the fascists in World War II, very little had changed. How did he do it? Visconti filmed the events in master shots, only occasionally tracking in or cutting to a close-up. His editing was never quick, preferring instead longer takes. The carefully composed master shots placed the characters against the backdrop of their homes, estates and landscapes, which results in seemingly important people, dominated either by their environment or events going on around them. The perfect example of this is the celebrated ball that climaxes the picture. Through careful composition, lighting, use of colour, music, camera movement and the juxtaposition of point of view shots and sporadic dialogue, Visconti delivered the impression that the ball was unfolding in real time. When in actual fact, Visconti was effectively condensing the next, count them, nearly 50 years of de Lampedusa's novel. This in itself is an astonishing decision. Where the film ends in 1863, the novel goes on until 1910, pulling down its focus on the prince's jilted daughter, Conchetta. She had been in love with Tancredi, but her shy diffidence indicated to her father that she would not have been a suitable wife for him. Instead, the novel ends with her pondering how her life might have turned out had she married Tancredi. And it was on that note that de Lampedusa chose to end his novel, obviously lamenting the loss of the once great aristocracy now as extinct as the Serval. But Visconti had other ideas. He focused on the fact that the prince will die knowing his vision will be fulfilled, that great change will never be delivered to anyone. And this is what ensures that Visconti's film is not heritage cinema. If anything, it is disillusioned cinema, 
where the change, much promised by the Risorgimento, fails to deliver to those who need it most. The peasants. Our last view of them is their toiling away in the fields as the ball is already underway. And come the dawn, as Tancredi and Angelica are whisked away in their carriage, we hear executions of the soldiers Tancredi once fought alongside. Hearing those shots stirs Angelica's father from his slumber, and he mumbles, Excellent army. They do things properly. Which foreshadows the middle class's collusion with Mussolini's fascists. The ball sequence begins two and a quarter hours into the film and lasts right through its end some 50 minutes later. What is important to note here is that Visconti was taking a technique he had first used on a neorealist drama and applied it to an historical, supposedly romantic epic. Style and content could hardly be less suitably matched. But that was part of Visconti's point. In the hands of another storyteller, Tancredi's marriage to Angelica would have been a romantic act of defiance, where their love symbolises the idealistic triumph over all social and political forces. Which was exactly how Pasternak had presented Javago and Lara in their struggle against history. Wouldn't it have been lovely if we'd met before? Before we did. Yes. Several great American films bear the hallmarks of Visconti's masterpiece. Firstly, consider the meticulous manner with which Francis Ford Coppola and Mario Puzo pieced together the little events of Connie Corleone's wedding that goes into making the opening of The Godfather. You never told me you knew Johnny Fontaine. Sure. You want to meet him? Huh? Oh, well, sure. My father helped him with his career. He did? How? Consider the careful cutting back and forth between the dark interior of Don Corleone's study and the bright exterior of the family's large gardens. The happy celebrations with the dark conversations. Wide shots, close-ups, snippets of dialogue, the use of colour, light, shadow, music. All detail a mosaic so essential to putting each of the characters not just in place in terms of the plot, but providing the audience with a great sense of culture. It goes on for all of 27 minutes. Several years later, Michael Cimino sought to do the same thing with The Deer Hunter. It's good luck for the rest of your life. One final thing. In a film filled with startling images, one of the standouts is the evening the people of Palermo gather to hear the result of their plebiscite. Don Fabrizio joins the celebrations and Visconti opts for a low angle so that we are looking up at the prince, the fireworks bursting across the night sky behind him. It is a shot that Martin Scorsese repeated in his equally dispassionate Gangs of New York when Bill the Butcher, played by Daniel Day-Lewis, watches as his fellow New Yorkers celebrate the abolition of slavery. Lincoln will make all white men slaves! That's the spirit, boys. Go off and die for your blackie friends. Rather than being a piece of heritage cinema, Gangs of New York drips with regret that the violence and racism that birthed the nation is the racist violence that fed the nation's mythology. And the same can be said for almost every Scorsese film with a period setting. Raging Bull, Goodfellas, The Age of Innocence, Casino, The Aviator, Shutter Island, The Wolf of Wall Street, Silence. 
none of them carry even a hint of nostalgia. So now we can understand that all films that offer a critical view of history, uncluttered by nostalgia, stem from Visconti's masterpiece. Thank you.